episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me, as always, is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? Doing great, Jody. How about yourself? I'm going through a little trial and tribulation this morning, as you are well aware. <laughs> yes, but that's for another podcast. It is. So, yeah, absolutely. That was a very impressive intro there. That was very dynamic and the harmonization there, and I, I, I liked it. So, pat yourself on the back. That was, that was a beautiful. I don't want to break my arm, but thank you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> what you got right. today? We're we're gonna actually do another one of those talk back mic things. So what are we talking back real quick at the front here? Today we have waves and what's happening and what has happened and in the, the last few weeks. The last, as of the yeah. recording of this podcast, anyway. Yeah, it has gone down the last couple of, of weeks here. Most of our listeners are probably aware that waves went subscription service for a short period of time only yes, without any notification to their user base. They even had one of their infamous, infamous $29 plug-in sales. <laughs> yeah. All the way up until the day of switching. That, needless to say, created quite a bit of an uproar. Yeah. A lot of people talked about on a lot of different forums. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if we should go into the details here, but basically it would be like any of your plugins that you owned outright, they would still be valid assuming that you didn't need an upgrade. Or that you didn't lose your computer and something suddenly went kaput and such. So so there was no more upgrade plan. It was just, nope, now you're paying for subscription, buddy. Yes. Needless to say, people were upset about that. Neither you or I are huge Waves users. I have a few. I stopped using them a while ago. (laughs) Right. We were not affected, but a lot of people were. There was obviously a massive backlash to this. People were losing their freaking minds. And I would say kind of rightfully so, because on the surface, it seemed like it might work for them. I don't know what led them to go down that decision that, They were not going to sell perpetual licenses anymore. Right. Money. Yeah, I guess. I mean, subscription brings in a lot of steady cash flow, right? Right. Yeah. Anyway, people were outraged and voiced their opinions, and Waves have now backtracked. And now you can actually buy perpetual licenses again. The WUP is back in effect if you own them. They're $29. Sales are back again. (laughs) Everything. It's Uh, essentially waves prior to the subscription debacle plus subscription value now. Right. From my perspective is that's what they should have done from the the get-go. Yeah. That would have been a smart move. I can't think of another provider that doesn't do that. Slate has perpetual licenses. Mm -hmm. They don't push them. But they're there. Same with Plugin Alliance, all this kind of stuff. So, UA is um, getting into that business as well. Universal. Audio. Yeah, right. They have the subscription, but still, obviously, the perpetual licenses are there. So, but but the I, nice thing about the Universal Audio version, if you own the perpetual license, mm-hmm. you automatically get the subscription for that particular plugin for free. It doesn't cost you any extra. You mean as if you. As if you were paying for a subscription, but you're not paying for it. You get the native version because it's the native version that is the subscription version. Got you. So, yeah. So, if you own the one that runs on- If you own the the one that runs on the Apollo, you automatically get the native version for free. You don't have to pay monthly for that. 
Right. And, and that's, that's how, how you, you do it right. <laughs> yeah, that's how you take care of your customers, right? Exactly. Kind of good on waves for rolling it back and doing right by their customers. It would not have happened if people had not been completely losing, losing their, their minds. <laughs> so if you're on the fence now, you're maybe armed with a little bit more information. But I, I wanted to address that because I mentioned that in my Friday find last mm. week. Yes. So now we don't ever have to talk about that ever again. <laughs> so what's today's topic? Managing low end. It's, uh, it's a tough it's topic a- for a lot of people, especially for the bedroom producers and bedroom mixers. And even for guys that have the full-blown studios that are fully tuned, it can still be an issue. It's something that we have to pay attention to. You often hear guys when they're asked, what makes a mix sound pro versus amateurish mm-hmm. type of thing? Just saying that makes me Cringe. feel a little bit queasy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it's like, ugh. But it is true. And, and it's how is the low end? How is that sitting? What we kind of want in most cases, I think, is we want that weighty kind of nice low end that has punch and it's not just flabby and tubby and kind of overpowering. So, Okay. So how do we get there? Well, the first one is, Jody. (laughs) Monitoring? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Your monitor speakers are a big factor to this. I know for myself, I tend to mix on smaller speakers. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is, is I don't want to blast my head out doing it. Doing that, the speakers themselves, I think, only go down to about 70. I'd have to look at the brochure again. It's either 70 or 80. I can't remember. It might, well. I have two different sets of speakers and both of them are smaller in size for the mixing portion of things. And one goes down a little lower than the other. Regardless of that though, I do have a sub in my system to take care of the extra low end of what happens that these speakers can't get to. I am baffled by guys that do it without that. And you like being me. one of them. <laughs> yeah. Right. Probably have asked you before, but I can't remember. So I'm going to ask you again. Do you always have your sub on? Yes. Or do you? Yeah, you do? I always okay. have it on. I Because I know there are guys that do essentially like a mix check, but by hitting the sub and just to make sure that, ah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. where the low end is. Right. And I will go to so far as to say that I will do that. I can turn it on and off and check mm-hmm. that out. I don't do it very often. Yeah. Because I want to know exactly what it's going to sound like in the full range. That's my preference. And then, of course, even if we have the speakers that can generate that low frequency, the next thing is, I would almost say, is is at least equally important is the room and and treatment and stuff. Because, first of all, if you can't hear it, you're not going to be able to dial it in accurately. No matter how good of, like you know, meters that you have and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But also, if the room is not perfect, which none really is, you know, <laughs> you're not getting an accurate recreation there. So it might be that you have dips or bumps in certain frequencies in your room, and that will obviously inform your decision. So that's when you get into or the core check or whatever. It's that alternative 
information, alternative facts in your mixing. <laughs> Take you that phrase out of your notes. dirty mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do we get so, around that in terms of room problems? Well, it's a couple of things, right? I mean, the, the first thing that we can do is using some kind of room treatment yes. as best as we can. This is probably not the final solution, but doing some kind of treatment with base traps or absorbers, that type of thing, and at least getting it a little bit more even. That's step one if we can. There is. And, you know, I want to just take a moment to be a de-influencer by saying this. Do it. <laughs> Buying foam is not your best bet. I know that there are companies out there that say, oh, our foam traps are the best. Nope. That would be incorrect is the best way to say it. Your best bet is to purchase stuff that is tested and true. And one of the best things is Owens Corning 705 in terms yeah, of base. Because 703 like is great route. for, yeah, the DIY route. You go and buy some Owens Corning panels of fiberglass, cover them up yourself and place them in the appropriate spots. And 705 is great for base. 703 is great for mid-range. And since we're talking base right now, we'll talk 705. And I know that I've got 705 panels double thick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that, but that's one that of the issues though. Really with, good with, for pulling the low end into appropriate focus, so to speak, in the room. Right. I was gonna say that's one of the big issues though, but when you're dealing with base, because the waves are so long, it takes up, it's not like a short little flimsy panel. It's not going to do anything for no, it. No, like, it, it takes it a needs lot of depth panel. <laughs> right. And, a lot of depth in the panel too. Right. We're talking bulk here. And yes. depending on the room that, you know, you're not going to get it perfect depending on the size, right? No. It is tricky when you're talking about foam there going off on your tangent. Yeah. I last recommended somebody not do that as late as last night. Wow. <laughs> so somebody, yeah. Somebody goes, hey, should I uh, get some of this? Like, nope. No. Don't do it. Don't do it. No. It's not worth it. But anyway, money. I'll get off my pedestal here. So the first step, I think, obviously treating your room to the best of your ability. And there are companies out there that will help we'll you. pre-make these things. And you can also read interviews. There's yeah. one of me somewhere on the internet being part of their... What do they call that? The the SOS help section? Uh, yeah, the sound on sound. Uh, room rescue, was it? The room rescue, yes. I yeah. was part of the room rescue a bunch of years ago where they helped me retune my room, so to speak, from afar. Because usually they go to the person's room and do it in person. They had me doing it by sending pictures and drawing out exact diagrams of everything and then explaining what I needed to do. And then I went and did it and it made a massive difference. You can probably find that article online somewhere in their archives. If you search my name and sound on sound, yeah. but I'm not the only one and there's been plenty and there's various ways of getting that information rather than us trying to beat it to death in a podcast. Right. Yeah. And once and you it, get your room set up with these sound panels appropriately placed and such to get the low end under control, there's additional steps that you can take to alleviate issues as well. You have something that you're actually using, which is called what? I'm using the Slate VSX system, which I'm really, really enjoying. The, That's more of a headphone thing though, right? It is a headphone thing. And I have another system that you're going to talk about a little bit later that 
did wonders for me as well. But I was curious about this because I'm not in a completely ideal room, right? Like most of us aren't. So I, I was really intrigued about the VSX thing. And primarily for, obviously for mixed translation, that's where everybody's doing this, but the low end to kind of get that as good as possible. That is intriguing. There's also another one that I have that you have as well. So mention that one. That is the sound ID setup from mm -hmm. Sonarworks. Yeah. Which allows you to take a print of your room based on their software that then creates a very nice EQ curve of magnitudes of difference depending on how bad your room can be. It does require using a specialized microphone to do it and a bit of time to spend time walking around your room, placing the mic in the right spot for it to pick up the information that it needs to set the EQ curves that it does. But then once so you have that, it. it is so worth it because it just straightens everything out in a sense. Now, mind you, I have the room treatment, the monitor speakers, the sub, and sound ID. Yeah. And while sound ID can be quite magical, I wouldn't do it without the other two. Although I'm right. sure people do. The idea here is just, again, to go back to the whole monitoring thing, that you got to do the best of what you have. And the overarching thing here is that you can't get something right if you're not hearing it right. Mm -hmm. you know. And that's when you get the car test, right? You go out and it's like, oh, my God, it sounds so horrible. Or it sounds horrible when I listen wherever, right? right. Things don't translate. So improving your monitoring situation, and that doesn't mean – buying the biggest, most expensive monitors that you can or can't afford. That's not going to solve your issue if you have no treatment in your room or anything else. Well, it creates new problems. If I go and get another set of speakers, I actually have to dig out the microphone for sound ID and do and print based on those speakers and where I have placed them. This placement yep. makes a big difference. And that makes a huge difference in how your low end reacts. So the low yep. end of a typical monitoring speaker is not going to fill the room the same way as having that speaker with a properly set sub that gives you additional low end information. Now, that being said, I've listened to movie mixes where it makes me wonder how did a major motion picture allow this low end to happen in the mix? <laughs> Which is, yeah. when you think about it, kind of crazy because most people wouldn't even notice it if their speakers don't go down that low. This is true. So in terms of speakers that only go down to 150, let's take a word from some sponsors that might go even further. And we're back. We're going to move on from the science of the room and your monitors and treatment and plugins that you can get to kind of straighten that stuff out into talking about actual portions of the mix. And the first thing that we would look at is what? I would say the arrangement of low-end instruments in the track. Just the low-end instruments? What about all the instruments, including the low-end? Well, well, sure. What I mean by that is instruments that are not necessarily going down that far or things that are cluttering up that low end that don't need to be there. So what I mean by that is usually we're talking about the low end or the subs 
primary instruments there being, of course, kick and bass. And whether that is, you know, electric bass or synth bass, it doesn't matter. Stand Double up. bass. Uh, yeah. Come on, let's not forget the orchestral dudes. That's right. Looking out, things are arranged in the track. Yes. Leaving as much space, as it were, or room for those instruments to live and where they are in their frequencies and things is the first thing. So if you have electric bass, let's say that's playing the main bass line or what have you, and then you're doubling that with a synth bass, does that need to be there? What's the most important thing? So you might, okay, well, that synth bass, I want to double the line, but maybe we can do that an octave higher. Things uh -huh. that can create an issue when it comes to that. Right. What are you looking for in the arrangement? In terms of the low end, I'm going in between things in that if I'm doubling a bass, as you say, most often I'm going to use the electric bass or the live played bass along with the synth bass. When I do that, it's the live bass that I'm going to use for its upper end value and the synth bass I'm generally using for the lower end value. Okay, so you're thinking more of a layering kind of a thing just to create the hole there possibly, which is... If that's the right. case, yes. Right. Now, generally, I don't always layer that kind of stuff. I'm going to choose one or the other most often, but there have been times in the past where I've done both. And usually I want the value of the picking or the fingering of a bass that is live combined with the solid feel of the synth bass which tends to fill things out a little bit more dramatically than in a regular bass. That would be an arrangement factor. And doing that, most likely I would end up rolling off the low end with a high pass filter on the electric bass when I do that and a low pass filter with the synth bass to get things out of the way of each other so that they work in conjunction rather than fighting each other. Yeah. And then this is, of course, to combine that is, with the kick. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, this is obviously very style dependent it as is. well. You know, what you're describing there is something that what I would hear more in like the pop vein or something. Right. If you're dealing with like EDM or something, you're perhaps unlikely to have an electric bass as it is. But anyway, so sorry, cut no, you off. Keep fine. going. In terms of combining that with the kick, I have a method that I've been going through with some recent remixes right now where I'm thinking that the kick provides a little bit more of the low end thunk than the bass. And generally that's reality anyway, where I will pump up a lower value on the kick, but still roll up a high pass filter so that I get almost like a bump, maybe around 50 on this particular album that I'm dealing with right now because it gives a lot more support with the kicks that were recorded on it. And the bass starts taking a little bit more of the higher end of the low to say the conjunction that happens there. And since it's not EDM, I'm not doing any kind of sidechain compressing with the kick driving the bass out of the way. But I have done that in the past where I want the kick to provide the attack and I use sidechain compression on the bass, which pulls the bass out of the way for the attack of the kick. And that's a trick yeah. that's pretty prominent actually in EDM and some other genres. And that way you get the power of the rhythm from the kick, but still get the low end functionality from the bass. And depending yeah, on so how hard you hit that compressor on the side chain in EDM, you can get like a full on pumping 
but in other genres, you might not get pumping and you wouldn't even technically notice that you're missing a little bit of the attack of the actual bass line. How do yeah, you, I mean, and is that you, something that you do as well? Or? Yeah, I, I've obviously done that technique as well. And if you're dealing with the sidechain settings well enough, you don't really lose any of the harmonic function of the bass. Mm -hmm. It's just that when the kick is hitting that you get- It's taking priority on the attack. Exactly, yeah. And another thing there also with these values that we're kind of throwing out here, like you mentioned, like around 50 on the kick or whatever, mm -hmm. that is very, very dependent on the track itself. So it's not like, oh, Jody said 50 hertz here. Let, right. Let's always boost that. Yeah. So, but, but the idea there is that you have the weight of the kick. And, you know, you mentioned a little bit of a, perhaps like a resonant peak on that as well to make that poke out and carry a little bit more weight. Mm -hmm. Whereas the bass might focus a little bit higher, yes. you know, depending on frequency and stuff. So, And based uh, on what we were saying about the speakers, yeah, that is not something that I would hear in the nope. monitors without the sub, which is yep. why I think it's so important to have a sub because now I, with the sub, I can feel what that's actually doing. Going down to that level is not a frequency that you're going to technically hear so much as you're going to feel. This is true, yeah. Right. And that's one reason as well that I wanted to go down the route and trying out the VSX, the VSX mm -hmm. because of the speakers I have. They don't go down very low, even though that I used to double check on headphones. They're not super accurate. Right. You know, when I would do that, it would give me a good idea what's there. And with the sound ID, I was in a much better place. Right. Yeah, again, the overarching thing here, again, is like, if you can't hear it, how are you going to make an educated choice on it? Right. And just listening for that. So I, that's why I like those as well. Here's another quick tip on this thing, and I'm sure we've mentioned this before on the podcast. Generally speaking, your kick and your bass and other low-end instruments that are in the low area, you're going to mix those suckers in mono, generally yeah. speaking. Very rarely does it not end up being in mono. Now, that being said, most often, most guys these days will put that dead center. If you're mm -hmm. talking the era of the Beatles, you might have it off to one side because that's what they had to do, bouncing tracks onto their four tracks to get things separated. They would separate bass and drums away from vocals and guitars and other higher sounding instruments so that they had a full effect of each side doing what it was supposedly doing. Yeah. Check out the early Van Halen records. They did the same thing where yeah. it's like Michael on one side and Eddie on the other. And it's like, oh, oh, this feels weird. But hey, you know, just imagine how successful they would have been if, if they hadn't done that. Right? So. <laughs> just, just imagine. Yeah. And as right. we've already kind of touched on, I was mentioning high pass filters and mm -hmm. such on this thing that I'm currently remixing. I'm running even high-pass filters on the kick. Now, I'm not running it very high. I'm right. roughly around 30 to 50, depending on the kick that's in the particular track that I'm on the remix of. But other instruments like guitars, where you get weird kind of chuggy-chuggy things from distortion, depending on how the guitar player plays, I might be rolling it up a lot higher, above 100, 150. I know that the yeah. highest that I've gone so far on a guitar track in one of these remixes is about two, almost 250. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty high. But I'm trying to get it well out of the way, and the part didn't really need it. There was just noise down there that I wanted to get rid right. of, and that's what yeah. I did. And that helps clean up your mix, too. It's a lot less 
information that's not needed to be in there. Now, do you always roll up that high? No. Do you always roll off down that low? No. It's dependent upon what you're trying to get out of the track. So there's a range. And I'm finding myself using it a lot more than I normally would. And I'm not hating myself for it. (laughs) (laughs) That's just good. But Yeah, but one thing to keep in mind there as well, though, is like even though you're rolling off in that extreme case up to like 250, you said, Mm -hmm. depending on the slope, it's not like it's a steep cut at that, right? So you might have like a 12 or 18 dB slope that would be relatively drastic, but it doesn't mean that you don't have information at like 100, right? say. So, you know, you have to listen for those things. The only thing I would caution is that you take certain values as gospel and you go, oh, you know, I should always roll off everything below 150. No, that's why I was saying there's a range there, man. That's a range, not a a hard, hard. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, again, let's say that you're doing song and why this is so style dependent, as we always say, like where if you're doing like a really aggressive metal track, let's say, and the guitars are tuned down to, even a. if it's like seven <laughs> string, right? Yeah. Or even if you just like B or whatever, right? If you roll off too aggressively on that, you're losing all the identity of that instrument. Quite possibly. So it's yeah. not like, so it's not a gospel thing. They always roll off. Then you might have to just roll off a little bit to keep everything going. But then again, the kick probably moves up. So you just kind of hear the beater or whatever. Mm-hmm. Those are things to keep in mind. And one thing I think you kind of touched on as well getting the kick and the bass to sit nicely together. You might have to boost a little bit of low end on the bass mm-hmm. if, it's, if it needs it, but that might be a different frequency than the kick. More so often let's say than not, that, it will be. I'm not going to say that it's common for it to be the right. same. But then you might also compensate a little bit on the kick in that area mm-hmm. where you're kind of boosting the bass. So perhaps a few dB or more if it calls for it, trying to get them to play a little bit better together than have that presence. Yeah. And now- It's a hard thing to get right, you know? It is a hard thing to get right. And in terms of speaking about people with out subs when they're doing mixes, especially for feeling really low end, there are a few tools that you can use to kind of help get that bass to sing out or be a little more present in smaller speakers or mono speaker setups. Mm-hmm. Such things like the Waves R bass. <laughs> yeah. And and also the Brainworks Substance. And mm-hmm. Logic has a sub bass. And I would assume that Ableton and Cubase and Studio One and Pro Tools all have some sort of bass enhancer to help with small speaker prep. Additionally speaking, there's another plugin by plug-in alliance or BX, I should say. The Brainworks sub filter is also a great way to add some additional weight when you can actually hear it appropriately. So those are things to look at in terms of adding to your mixing arsenal of tools to help you if you're having problems with low end in a mix. Yeah. It is a balancing act, I would say, with we're so careful that we don't want to overload the subs, right? Or the low end period. But we don't want to be scared of it either because it is the weight of the track. So sometimes if you don't have enough, you have to add some like this. But like you mentioned, those plugins, they're a great way to make us feel that there's more low end 
then there actually is and fill out our track. Just easier to go overboard because it sounds really, really exciting. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of going overboard, let's move on to our Friday finds. Chris, what have you got this week? I discovered a plugin slash application of sorts by Nugen Audio. It's for collaborating with different people and ideally getting mixed feedback and stuff. It's a plugin called Jotter. J-O-T-T-E-R. I thought this was kind of cool that there is a plugin that you can put on your master buzz and, and it's essentially a way to communicate different things. They had some rather hilarious comments in their description for it. I, I won't bore you with them. Go check them out. It reminded me a lot of like SoundCloud of people. Oh, that was a cool thing in the, in the song, whatever. This works very much the same way that you can add comments to a mix at a specific timeline. So that when you're communicating, it could be things like, you know, or, you know. The guitar, when it comes in right here, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't yeah, know the exact time of what they're talking about. I, right, or check out, there's something wrong with this sub hit here or whatever, address that. One thing that I thought was really cool with this is also that the client that you might be working for doesn't need to have this. They can get the same downloaded version and use the standalone track. So they could do it with the stereo mix as well and kind of get that. I thought that was really, really cool for a way to send mix information or just communication back and forth. I concur. So yeah, that was a really, really nice tool, I thought. What do you have, Joey? I am looking at something that we kind of touched on a little bit today, even though it's a low-end thing that we're talking about is compression. And there mm -hmm. are various forms of compressors out there. And if you are looking for something new in the compressor world, there is a plugin called Firepressor from United Plugins. That compressor is, as of the taping of this podcast, up until April 16th of 2023, free. And who doesn't mm -hmm. love a free compressor? Now, the idea of the Firepressor is that it's got four different types of compressors in one. They have the distressor, which is a famous compressor. I've been using mm -hmm. it a lot on these remixes as of the last few days. The 1176, a very Mew, and the DBX 160. Now, the interesting cool. thing about this is that it has a square in the center of the interface that is a multicolored XY box. So you can blend between these different compressor settings and make up your own Distressor 160 mix or a very your new 1176 mix or something. It's crazy how this would actually work. It's like a Frankenstein of compressors. It right is. There. And you can currently try it out for free. So that is my Friday find for today. Nice. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. Doing so will get you weekly reminders about Tuesday tips when they come out, and we'll make sure that you don't miss any future episodes of this incredible podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the word low, and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page on the website and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good one, Jody. Bye.